Welcome, everyone. This is Treks to Nowhere. In this episode, I'm going to take you all back to the summer of 2019 when I set out to complete a non stop, unsupported, fastest known time attempt on the infamous Vermont Long Trail. Now, if you don't already know, the Vermont Long Trail is notorious for being exceptionally difficult and technical, and most who do complete a through hike take several weeks to do so. My personal goal for this project was first and foremost to try and go as fast as I possibly could. My secondary goal was to try and complete the entire trail in under seven days. Now, rather than wander around the story and regale you with wonderful and romantic tales of my journey along the long trail, I'm instead going to read verbatim from my written trail journal so that you can get a clear and detailed picture of exactly what my experience was like on this journey, and more specifically, the hardships that I endured. For the previous nine years, the fastest known time on the long trail in an unsupported fashion has been held by my good friend, Travis Wildeboer. His time of six days, 17 hours, would be incredibly tough to beat, and I knew it. For clarity, when I say unsupported, it simply means hiking the entire trail, carrying everything needed from the very start, and taking no new food along the way. Of course, water from creeks is allowed. After all of my studying of the trail and report reading, I was actually feeling moderately confident that I could at the very least keep close to Travis's pace. But then, just a few weeks before I was set to start, an accomplished adventurer from the UK named Josh Perry came over to Vermont and knocked over seven hours off of Travis's time, bringing the record down to six days, nine hours, and 48 minutes. This was monumentally deflating, as I knew with my current level of training that the record was most certainly out of reach for me. I was super excited for Josh, but it was a really hard pill to swallow after getting myself psyched up for weeks. Ultimately, I shook it off though and went right back into prep mode. Now, before going into any details on my hike and having now made it through the adventure successfully, let me say this as plainly as possible. The Vermont Long Trail is an absolute monster of a trail. It is extremely difficult, rugged, muddy, and flat-out dangerous in places. I fell several times, once right onto my kneecap, thinking that I may have shattered it. My feet were more macerated than in any other race or trail run, and some of the actual trail was more treacherous than the most technical sections along the Appalachian Trail. Anyone, and I mean anyone, that completes the long trail earns it. On the afternoon of Friday, June 29th, my partner and I drove up to Jay, Vermont, and I stayed at the Jay Mountain Inn about six miles from Journey's End Trail and the Long Trail start. We spent Saturday just hanging out around town and even rented bikes so we could ride the Newport bike path up to the Canadian border. We tried to visit the famous Opera House in Newport, Vermont, that straddles the border, but it had already been closed for the day. We spent a few minutes taking pictures there and within moments had Border Patrol agents pulling up to monitor us. 
It was a little bit scary, but we opted to just leave as to avoid any possible confrontation. It seemed a little extreme, but so are the times, I suppose. By evening, I was all packed and ready for an early morning start. My goal was to get to the start by 5 a.m., but there was also a forecast for a lot of expected rain. I didn't want to hike up to the Journey's End approach trail in the rain or in the dark, so I told my partner that I was flexible on the start time. Day 1 The forecast for my start morning wasn't looking good. There was expected rain for the entire day accompanied by likely strong thunderstorms. I considered pushing back my hike an entire day, but my partner had to get back to Boston, and I really just didn't want to wait another day to start. I think in retrospect, it might have actually been a smart idea to wait another day since I blame a lot of my later feet issues on the bad conditions I faced during the first day. But hindsight is always 20-20, as they say. Rather than stress, we opted to just take our time. I had originally wanted to start at 5 a.m. from the border, but this also meant leaving the hotel by 4 a.m. and starting up the journey's end trail by 4.30. Instead, we took our time and made it to the parking area about 5 a.m. Then the two of us took our time hiking the 1.2 miles up the approach trail to the border monument. It wasn't raining at that moment, but all the plants were soaking wet, so I knew I was going to get drenched regardless. We passed the shelter about a mile in and then continued on to the terminus. Once there, I fired up my satellite inReach, took some official start photos, and then waited until my watch hit 6 a.m. exactly. This gave us about 15 minutes to just goof off at the monument and enjoy some time together before parting ways. In addition to the actual border monument placed in the international swath that marks the start of the actual trail, there is also an LT terminus sign about 100 feet up the trail. I walked up to that for some pictures too before heading back to the start monument to mark my official 6 a.m. start time. At 5.55 a.m., I said goodbye to my partner and thanked her for all the support in my crazy adventures. I told her I would update at least twice a day on the inReach with check-in messages to note that I was doing okay and, should I run into any troubles, I'd also contact her directly. In addition, I had a friend offer to pick me up anywhere in central Vermont should I run into any major problems. Promptly, at 6 a.m. sharp, I started the tracking on my inReach, pushed out a at trailhead message, and started my stopwatch on my wristwatch. My hike had begun. I waved goodbye and for the first few miles, I was fired up and moving quickly. I kept having to tell myself to reel it in a bit as this was only the morning of day one. I weaved my way around the curvy and muddy trails in the first few miles, learning quickly that much of the trail was under-maintained and overgrown. This meant a lot of wet plants brushing up against me and therefore getting water into my shoes. Within one mile, I had completely wet feet already. No big deal, I thought. Hopefully, my valiant foot taping would hold up just fine. I was very careful to place really good Luco tape on both feet to avoid hot spots, maceration, or other blistering. I also had liberal amounts of sports slick and trail toes lube on my feet to keep them lubed up. I went over a few small summits and felt like I was making really good progress, although in reality, I didn't actually know the distance I had covered. It felt like several miles, though. At one point, I crested a small hill and a wooden sign denoted Carlton Mountain. I realized that this was the first peak on the trail, a peak that I also thought I had already passed over 30 minutes prior. 
I learned right then and there that miles go by very slowly on the long trail, and that I was going to be in for some very long and difficult days. There were no views to speak of on that first morning as everything was socked in with a dense fog. It wasn't raining per se, but I was essentially hiking in a cloud. By mid-morning, I found myself summiting Jay Peak, the first real significant peak of the hike. It had now started raining in earnest and it was really dang cold. I made it to the top shivering despite wearing my full rain gear. I popped inside the warming hut at the building on the top of the mountain just to get out of the elements for a few minutes and realized very quickly just how hard this hike was going to be. I was able to get some cell phone signal and did a quick forecast check for the remainder of the week. Thankfully, after this first day, the forecast looked fairly rain-free for the week, although with some really high temperatures over 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Coming down Jay Peak on exposed rocks scrambling, I learned quickly how terrible my trail runners were on wet rock. I fell on my ass at least five times. I became incredibly adept at stepping around suspicious rocks but still missed one every now and then and ended up sprawled on the forest floor. I still can't believe I didn't break any bones during any of these episodes, especially with a 25-pound pack. I was careful to eat my food despite not being super hungry so as not to get behind on calories. By mid-afternoon, the rain had let up a bit and I found myself at Hazen's Notch Camp Shelter, 18 miles in. I took my first real break there to eat and rest a bit. Finding good water sources was also not a problem and I was filling up whenever I needed using my small, handheld trail filter. This early in the hike, the filter was still working fine, but I was already starting to wonder how much time I was going to be losing screwing around with it, rather than just using purification drops. After a decent break, I pushed on and summited Haystack Mountain. I remember it being a beefy climb, but once on top, it sort of rolled along for several miles, going up and over to Lotson and Belvedere Mountains. On the descent down from Belvedere, I noticed that my shoe insoles kept jamming up into the front of the toe box of my shoes. This was incredibly uncomfortable, but I had no real way to fix it. Every time I took my shoes off and adjusted the insoles, within minutes of hiking, they were getting jammed up into the toe box again. Finally, I just gave up and took the insoles out completely, hiking with my feet directly in contact with the bottom of the shoes. This was incredibly destructive to the soles of my feet, not to mention it pulled off all of my protective taping. But there was really nothing else I could do. This single act really doomed my feet for later in the hike, and in honesty, I'm not sure what other solution I might have had at the time. I have worn many brands of shoes that perform fine when wet, so I was not sure why that particular brand I was wearing had such a hard time with the wet insoles sliding around. I even tried to glue them in at one point with my emergency superglue packet that I was carrying, but it didn't hold. It also meant that I wouldn't have the superglue later for when I might really need it. Around 5 or 6 p.m., the sky opened up with a torrential downpour and I was stuck right in the middle of it. Of course, I was right between shelters at the time, so had no choice but to plod on through it. This only further soaked all of my clothing and made for some really miserable hiking. Around 8.30 p.m., the rains finally began to let up, just as it was starting to get dark enough out where I was considering a headlamp. 
I looked at my position on the map and saw that I wasn't even at Spruce Ledge Camp yet, where Travis had made it on day one. My original plan was to make it one shelter further to Corliss Camp, but I was realizing now just how slow the miles go on the northern section of the Long Trail. I was really disappointed, but decided to simply get some sleep at Spruce Ledge and plan to head out again very early in the wee hours of the morning. At 9 p.m., just as I was pulling out my headlamp, I got to a low point about a half mile before the shelter. I hadn't noticed the name before on the map, Devil's Gulch. In my many years of hiking, I have come to learn that any time there is a feature on a map with the name Devil attached to it, it almost always means there will be a crazy rock scramble. I recalled a conversation I had with a coworker the previous week where she had said that there was a section way up north on the Long Trail by Canada that was kind of like the infamous Mahusik Notch on the Appalachian Trail. Lots of crazy boulder climbing and scrambling. It now occurred to me as I was beginning to scramble over incredibly wet and dangerous rocks in the failing light that this section was Devil's Gulch. I thought to myself, I am such an idiot trying to go through Devil's Gulch at dusk on wet rocks with slippery shoes. Somehow, though, I made it through without any major incidents and eventually made it to the Blue Blaze Trail for the shelter. I hiked the 0.2 miles over the shelter, quietly cooked my dinner, and then crashed hard for the night. There were two other hikers in the shelter that I did my best not to disturb. I slept mostly comfortably, but tossed and turned a lot as well. I was up only a few hours later and back on the trail by 1.40 a.m. I probably should have tried to sleep a little longer, but was still hoping to make up some time from a very wet and rainy day one. Day two. I began hiking at around 1.40 a.m. on the second day. This was probably not my wisest decision, but I couldn't really sleep and figured, why not make use of the time? It had stopped raining at this point, but much of the trail was thick with ferns that were all soaking wet and that leaned into the trail, so despite the lack of direct precipitation, it would be a very wet morning of night hiking. I don't remember much of this second morning other than it feeling very lonely and very unmaintained. The trail was overgrown quite extensively. I eventually made it to Corliss Camp about seven miles up trail right as it was starting to get a little bit light out. I made a quick video update from the shelter there detailing things up to that point. Leaving Corliss, I settled into a nice rhythm and managed to get through both Butternut and Laraway Mountains in just a few hours. I was at the next shelter, Round Top, by 10.30 a.m. and pushing on towards Route 15 and the Lemoy River crossing. At around 11 a.m., I was at the bridge to cross the Lemoy River just past Prospect Rock. I took a couple pictures here, ate some food, and continued on to tackle the 3,000-foot climb up Whiteface Mountain. I could sense that Smuggler's Notch was starting to get close. This was a big milestone spot for me. I knew that Travis had stayed at the notch on his second night, and I was hoping to push on to the shelter halfway up the Mount Mansfield climb, should time permit. 
After crossing the Lemoy River, I began the climb up Whiteface on a bike path at first, and then a dirt road. It was honestly a nice change of pace and allowed me to cover quite a lot of ground quickly. A large chunk of the 3,000-foot climb up Whiteface was in fact on this dirt road, so I was quite content to just push out 3 mile per hour pace on easy and dry terrain. By this point, the sun was out in full and it was nearing 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Quite a difference from 24 hours prior when I was shivering in the warming hut on Jay Peak. I spent most of the afternoon going up and over Whiteface Mountain and then Madonna Peak. The long trail on Madonna Peak followed some ski slopes in places, so also allowed for some quick hiking. Working my way over these peaks brought back a lot of memories from my childhood. I had spent many summers with my mom and grandmother in Stowe, Vermont, with extended family, and remember learning all about the peaks in the area. Thinking back to those memories helped the miles go by a little bit faster. It was also turning out to be quite a beautiful evening, so I was finally really starting to enjoy myself, despite my still damp feet. Once on the other side of Madonna, I took a break at the Sterling Pond Shelter. I knew this shelter quite well, as my partner and I had day-hiked up to it just a couple of years prior. Smuggler's Notch truly was in reach now. I spent a few minutes talking with the shelter steward about my hike, and then moved on quickly. It was at this shelter that I had remembered I had packed some guacamole and pita breads. I feasted like a king. It was amazing. Completely renewed, I bolted quickly down to the road at Smuggler's Notch. The trail was recently rerouted a bit down towards the road, but my map and the blazes were current. I followed the official trail down to the road, but once there, opted to hike the quarter mile up to the day picnic area so I could eat my dinner there and use the public restroom. Incidentally, the same public restroom that Travis slept in on his second night. It was only 8.45 p.m. when I was cooking my dinner, so I made the decision to continue on after eating up to the Taft Lodge. It would be a tough climb, but I'd rather knock it out at night, I thought, than try to do it first thing in the morning. With a full belly, I packed up and began the slow slog of a hike up about 1,600 feet of climb in less than two miles to the Taft Lodge. It took me a little over an hour to make it to the lodge, and I was in my bivy falling asleep by 10.30 p.m. Day 3 I began day 3 at exactly 3 a.m. by making quick work of the remaining climb up to the chin of Mount Mansfield, completing my summit at 3.30 a.m. I was over to the visitor's center by 4 a.m. and over to the forehead by 4.30, already making my way down to Nebraska Notch. As the sun made its way up, I knew it was going to be a beautiful, albeit hot, day. As I started the climb up Mount Mayo and on to Bolton Mountain, I stopped often to look back at views of Mansfield. It was quite a lovely stretch of the trail. But then, something odd happened as I climbed up to Bolton Mountain. As I made my way along the trail, I began to hear a lot of what sounded like automatic weapons fire far off in the distance. At first, I thought maybe it was firecrackers being set off for the holidays, but it distinctly sounded like gunfire. I figured maybe it was just a shooting range, but what was amazing was the obvious automatic weapons fire. I thought maybe it could be a police training facility. 
my very tired mind wandered often, and I began imagining these bizarre scenarios where, while I was deep in the woods of Vermont, some kind of statewide riot or apocalyptic event had broken out near Burlington, and there were gun battles going on. It was all so surreal, but then something even weirder happened. As I was hiking along, listening to this distant sound of gunfire, there was suddenly an incredibly loud and deeply resonating noise that nearly knocked me off my feet. What was weird was this noise felt like it came from very far away, yet still seemed like it was well over a hundred decibels. How could this be? What the hell was it? It sounded kind of like when a really loud bass note hits on a subwoofer. I just couldn't understand how it could be so loud so far up into the deep mountains of Vermont. What could it be? Was the police firing range testing some kind of new sonic weapon? I honestly don't know what else it could be. About 20 minutes later, I saw a northbound hiker and I asked her, Did you hear that really loud, strange, deep sound a while back? Her eyes immediately lit up and she replied, Yes, I thought I was going crazy. What the heck was that? I told her that I truthfully didn't know, but I was glad that I wasn't hallucinating as it was really quite unsettling. This horrific sound continued several more times over the next few hours. I came to discover after my hike much later that it was in fact a Vulcan-style weapon that was being tested at the Ethan Allen Military Testing Field outside of Underhill, Vermont. I eventually began the long descent down to Highway 2 and I-89 and the low point of the long trail. I noticed on my in-reach satellite tracker that my tracking dots were starting to stray from the indicated long trail line on the map. I was concerned that I may have taken a wrong turn, but realized that the official long trail paper map I was carrying notes that the long trail has a new section in this segment. I took the White Blaze official trail, but at first glance, it looked as though I went off trail. I was assured when I got to the road and saw the signage that I had in fact taken the official White Blazed, newly created section of the long trail. When I hit the road, it was early afternoon and it was roasting hot. Temps were hovering around 90 degrees and I was exhausted. The direct sun and low elevation were sapping all of my energy. I took a really nice long break in the shade, ate another guacamole and cheese sandwich, and finished off almost a full liter of water. It was at about this time that I started noticing that I was having trouble with my small trail water filter. It wasn't pumping correctly, and I found myself going through all of the troubleshooting procedures over and over again trying to get it to work properly. This cost me so much precious time, and also many mosquito bites. Eventually, I did fill my two bottles and began the road walk on Duxbury Road. There's no other way to really put it. This section of the trail was utterly miserable, plain and simple. At one point, the trail veers off into a field that is not maintained at all and is just a haven for ticks. I plowed my way through it, picking up a few hitchhikers along the way, only to pop back out on the road only a mile further down. Very frustrating. After what seemed like an eternity, 
I finally made the trailhead for the six-mile climb up to the summit of Camel's Hump. This would be the single longest and most sustained climb of the entire trail. I put my head down and committed to a slow and steady pace up to the summit. It took hours. If you go back and look at my satellite tracks for this section, I basically started this climb at around 3.30 p.m. and didn't actually make the summit until after 7.30 p.m., four hours later. It was definitely the slowest section of my hike so far. At the summit, I rested a very long time while enjoying the breeze that was also keeping the black flies away. I knew that deep down it was still considerably early in the day and that I should not be tempted to stop in two miles at the next shelter, but rather push on to the shelter even further down the trail seven more miles. I was definitely exhausted from the climb though, and sure enough, when I arrived at the Montclair shelter two miles down the trail at 9 p.m., I cooked my dinner and decided to get some sleep. Looking back, this single decision definitely cost me. I also spent about 30 minutes again screwing around with my water filter, trying to get it to work properly. I was beginning to realize that this specific make and model of trail water filter may not have been a good water treatment solution. I squeezed into a tiny spot in the shelter, put my feet up, and was asleep within minutes. Day 4 July 3rd was what I considered to be the last of my short mileage days. I knew based off of Travis's itinerary that at the end of day four, I should be focusing on pounding out higher mileages to get to the finish as fast as possible. I would need to essentially step up my daily mileages into the 40s. I started day four at 2.40 a.m., and it was on this morning that I first started noticing my feet were having some serious troubles. I could feel significant blisters forming and notable maceration. I had been doing my best to swap out dry socks, but the miles and damp feet were simply catching up to me. I recall a lot of ups and downs in the morning of day four, and that the sun was particularly hot. Many of the peaks I went up and over were also ski areas, so I was able to look down many open chairlift cuts. It was on day four that I had my first true injury scare as well. As I was finishing the final hundred feet of climb up to the top of Mount Ellen, my right foot slipped on a wobbly rock. The result was that I came down hard with all of my weight directly onto my left kneecap into a pointy rock. The pain was intense and I thought for sure that I was done for and that my kneecap had in fact shattered. It started bleeding immediately and I poured cold water as fast as I could over my knee. I sat there on the side of the trail within sight of the summit, absolutely annoyed at myself for being so careless. I figured there was no way I could continue. But eventually the pain subsided and I stood up. I took a few slow steps with my left leg and was actually quite surprised that it appeared my leg and knee were working correctly without any major issues other than the intense pain. I took another step again and things seemed to work okay again. Could it be that my kneecap actually survived intact? I could tell that my entire knee was already swelling up pretty good, but at the very least, 
I figured I could hobble to a road somewhere and bail off the trail. At this point, I honestly figured there was no way I'd be able to finish out my hike, not with over 150 miles still to go. So, as expected, my pace slowed considerably and I plodded along, just nursing my knee. The trail along this ridge top and following the ski cuts was quite forgiving, which was a welcome surprise. When I made it to the next shelter at Battelle, I recall an older gentleman there noticing my knee almost immediately. He said something like, Dang, you really did a number on that knee. Looks pretty swollen. Well, he wasn't wrong. I had somehow convinced myself over the previous few miles that it was somehow okay, but there was no doubt that it was puffy. I spent over an hour at the shelter pouring cold creek water over my knee and taking several Advil out of my first aid kit, hoping to quell some of the swelling. I still couldn't believe that it wasn't completely shattered, given how much it hurt. One thing I did notice, though, was the intensity of the black flies at this particular shelter, so I was also bathing in DEET trying to keep them away. It was all definitely a low point of my hike. I was doing so well up to this point and even survived all of the rain and slick rocks on days one and two. Yet, I somehow found a way to catastrophically wipe out, on a beautiful, dry, sunny day, just feet from an open and grassy summit. I eventually left the shelter in a rather gloomy mood, but I figured I'd keep plotting as best I could. I knew Travis had made it to the Emily Proctor shelter, but that he had stopped early. I was hoping to at least make it one more shelter, or the Skyline shelter, two miles further down but at my slower pace, it would be tough. As the evening progressed, I did eventually roll into Emily Proctor just after sunset and decided to actually push on right past before even having a debate in my head so that I could get up to Skyline and effectively be ahead of Travis, even if only temporarily. A mere 50 minutes later, at 10.30 p.m., I rolled into the Skyline shelter and set up my sleep kit. I cooked a quick meal and crashed extremely hard. This would mark the last time on my hike that I was effectively ahead of Travis's pace. I knew the next day would be my first true test. If I wanted to match Travis, I'd have to hike 41 miles. Thank you everyone for following along. I will conclude the story of my long trail through hike in the next episode of the podcast. Take care, everyone, and be safe. <laughs> <laughs>